So first, does everybody have a handout? It's in the packet of handouts. So you know, if you've been following along so far, you should be OK. Secondly, um, so I, uh, as probably has been apparent to everybody, I've been really excited and really enjoyed being here. This has been really like, I feel like self-indulgent. I mean, I just, I've been having a great time. And so I wanted to thank, especially vociferously, uh, uh, Alex and Stacy for putting on such a great conference. And since I'm the last one, can we all like give them a round of applause? Thank you for putting on this. Uh, really. Not just, you know, the content has been wonderful and the mode of presentation has been great, the room and the, you know, everything. So I just, I really, it's, it's been awesome. Um, okay, so then partly because I am so excited about this material and because I am so excitable, um, I have a lot of things that I want to communicate. Um, uh, and I've been reprimanded, I've been, I've been mocked for the speed of my speech and I've been reprimanded for the density of my handout. So I want to um, sort of try to, what I'm going to try to do anyway is I, um, I'm, I'm going to try, but, but there are certain things you can only say, get to the point of saying, if you've already said some other things. And I really want to be able to get to the point of saying the things I can only say because of the you know, preliminary things. And this is a context where, this particular conference is a context where we can, I can, we can talk about these sort of more global issues, methodological issues in the nature of representation and thinking about representation that I don't usually be able to get to. So what I want to try to do uh, as much as I can is um, uh, not, there, I'm going to at various points not go through all the detail on the handout. And I'm going to try to keep myself, force myself to stay at a little bit of a higher level of generality um, so that I can get to talk about, so I can leave lots of good time for questions and discussion and so that we can sort of get to the stuff, at, the more global stuff at the end. That means that, and then I know I go fast, so I'm going to try to just skip stuff rather than saying it extra fast. So, but we'll see. Um, I think it shouldn't be quite as terrible as it might otherwise be because a lot of the things that I'm saying are uh, that I really care points I really care about making are things that other people have already said in this conference and in that sense that you know it's a very congenial and I think overlapping kind of set of discussion so that'll make it a little bit easier. Um, okay, so and I'm coming at so the, so what I want to do is I want to start with a discussion from the philosophy of mind. Uh, and then bring it into sort of the theory of representation. And I want to do that because that's really where I think it belongs. But I think that, um, uh, but I want to start with the philosophy of mind thing. And you know, in another context, I would really want to bring that back to the philosophy of mind. But I'm going to not be so interested in doing that here. Are you guys okay with that light in your face? I mean, it, you look great, but you know, okay. So. Um, all right, so, uh, so many philosophers uh, assume, and I'm not just in the philosophy of mind, but uh, you know, in the theory of representation, assume an exhaustive, exclusive dichotomy between what are variously called you know, iconic or imagistic or maybe analog modes of representation, these aren't all necessarily the same, and discursive or propositional or linguistic modes of representation, discursive modes of representation. Um, and uh, from that, they draw various kinds of you know, big philosophical conclusions. In one direction, the one that I've been you know, more, most engaged with, um, it's a conclusion that thought must fundamentally be language-like um, in order. You know, and in the other direction, though, there's also a conclusion that perception must be non-conceptual or non-propositional, and those are taken to go together. 
Um, obviously, as stated, both of those kinds of arguments are very, very quick. They're enthymematic. So it's not like people don't think there's no, they don't just simply assume there's exclusive and exhaustive dichotomy. They get, you know, they got some kinds of reasons, even if they're often not articulated, for making this assumption. I think there's two kinds of classes of reasons. Um, one is, uh, so, so, so there's a general idea which is that representations, and so I'm going to just going to focus on the sort of language of thought argument. That's going to be the, the argument from the philosophy of mind that I'm going to be sort of drawing from. And then I'm going to sort of be stepping from that into thinking about you know, how representations work more generally. Um, uh, I won't be talking so much about whether perception must be non-propositional or non-conceptual. That's closer to the topic of this conference. And I, what I basically want to do is set up a bunch of things you would think about to think about that question, right? So I'm not, but I'm scared of that question. Um, so the usual argument for this kind of move from an assumption of an imagistic or uh, exclusive and exhaustive dichotomy between imagistic and discursive modes of representation to the conclusion that thought must be fundamentally linguistic um, is that uh, in order to implement rational thought, representations have to be structured in order to underwrite appropriate transitions between thoughts that are you know, um, uh, reliably truth-tracking and sort of uh, uh, demonstrably truth-tracking. Um, and so that we only really get systematic, productive relationships among thoughts if there's, they have something like linguistic structure, a language-like structure. Um, uh, now, that's to say, so yeah, there's a very familiar argument. Why I think that means that you have to have something like language-like structure? I think there's two kinds of arguments for that more specifically. One is that, well, okay, yeah, there are interesting differences among representational systems, but the only really interesting ones are linguistic, right? The only really interesting ones that can support inference in any, you know, decently substantial sense of the term. Those are all basically language systems. The other kind of... Uh, uh, move, which is not necessarily incompatible, is um, look, if you're talking about interesting representational systems, any variations are ultimately notational, right? They're working in the same fundamentally basic, basic fundamental kind of way. Okay, so um, I think though that's false. I think both of those assumptions are false. Um, I think there are lots of different kinds of representational systems. There are lots of kinds of representational systems that do really interesting work and can support inference in interesting ways. And I think they do it in interestingly different ways. Um, and so that's really, so what I have, you know, the title of the section is a plea for pluralism. We should be acknowledging the plurality of the kinds of representation, importantly different kinds of representational systems that are out there. And basically what I want to do today is give you a tour through this diversity of representational types, right? Um, my own sort of argumentative interest in that is saying that the argument for the language of thought is too fast, but I think that especially for the purposes of this conference, just the tour itself is really what matters, right? So I'm just giving you the sort of philosophy of mind background in order to sort of see how people get to the point of making the distinctions they're making and why they're not making it might matter to make certain kinds of other distinctions. Um, okay, so I think representational systems form a continuum, or you know, yeah, form a continuum from I, what, you know, iconic photographs to discursive sentences. Um, and what we need is a clearer sense of the different ways in which representational systems work, and then we can try to get clearer on how a given particular representational system works. Um, the way I'm thinking about 
actually, let me just, yeah. Okay, the way I'm thinking about diversity and representational systems, I'm going to think about uh, differences, the different kinds of semantic principles and the different kinds of syntactic principles that a representational system can use. By a semantic principle, I mean a principle which assigns values in the world to the meaningful elements and meaningful parts of the system, meaningful, you know, what, what gives the system meaning, representation's meaning. Um, and by the syntactic principle, I mean the principle that combines parts into bigger things, right? So I'm especially going to be focused on differences in semantic and syntactic principles understood in those ways. Um, and what I want to say is that different representational systems combine different semantic and syntactic principles to produce empirically distinct, not just, you know, there's, there's this persistent risk that the debate about imagery, the imagery debate, the, you know, debate about propositionality of pictures, whatever, devolves into a terminological, sort of a merely terminological issue, or you could just trade it off however you want among various kinds of representation implementations. What I want to look for is empirically distinct profiles of implementational, I don't know if I can get that, but I would like it, um, expressive, what you can do and what you can represent in the system, and inferential, powers and limitations. So different systems work in different ways that mean that you can say, you can express different things, and you manipulate and deal with those system, the representations in those systems in different ways that make a difference, right? That, I think, is just interesting. Um, it also, hopefully, um, by, so by thinking about these intermediate and hybrid forms of representation, like maps and diagrams, as opposed to uh, sentences and pictures, I think we get, um, I think we get, uh, we can shed light on the two extremes. And then I also think that if we get really, you know, much clearer than I am today on uh, how these different principles work and the variety of ways that we're, we, they work, I think we can start to identify, we can hope to identify sort of distinctive signatures in the profile of expressive, you know, power and limitation, inferential pattern, uh, um, and we can try to use those in order to make inferences about what representational format might be implemented even when we can't see that representational So. Again, from the philosophy of language, philosophy of mind kind of uh, perspective, I basically um, very I'm a sort of frenemy of uh, the language of thought argument. I want to propose, I want to endorse the kind of language of thought argument, but much uh, you know sort of tempered. Um, though I'm not going to talk about that today. Um, but I have real problems with the language of thought argument. As it's, they have two really big problems with the language of thought argument. As it's usually you know uh, implemented. One is. Um, that uh, there's all these complicated issues about implementation, like in the brain. What does it mean for like a you know to have something you know uh, uh, have this thing in the brain that's doing that that is ascendant? I don't know. So because of that, I want to externalize the systems we're talking about. I'm going to be talking about uh, you know um, maps and pictures and diagrams, like as pieces of paper in the world, um, uh, representations uh, uh, in systems, but they're external in, in the world. So that's one important way of backing off of the usual argument. And the other is. Um, uh, I'm also, I'm really scared of, uh, not scared, but of images uh, of, and perception. I think that raises a whole host of really interesting, really hard other questions um, that I don't yet know the answers to. And so I want to think about what I think of these much more tractable cases of maps and diagrams, uh, which are already really complex. Um, Okay, so but I think that this by thinking about you know the the like locating these variety of representational types, I think that does set us some 
potential lessons for thinking about what propositions are, well, how it's useful to think about what propositions might be, uh, what, to say, what it is to say that a system is representational, uh, and what it, how that might work out in the context of pictures. Uh, okay, as you, often as the case, there will be both negative points and positive points that I'll be making, right? As often as the case, my negative points I'm more secure about than the positive points, but, you know, again, we'll talk about a lot of that in discussion. Uh, okay, so there are three basic features that I want to think of. What I'm going to do is I'm going to say, here's what language, here's, here's something, I mean, there are three basic points I'm going to make. In each case, I'm going to say, here's something thought needs to do. Remember, this is the sort of language of why you would get into the language of thought frame, you know, mindset. Um, I'm going to say, here's something thought needs to do. It's really clear that language does this, but it's not the only way you could do it. And there are interesting differences if you're not doing that way. Right? So, uh, so each case, I'm going to identify a feature of thought say something about how language fulfills that feature, and then think about the variety and other representational types. Okay? And those first two, well, the, the three are semantic, uh, there's, about, there's a semantic principle, semantic arbitrariness, there's a syntactic principle, syntactic neutrality, and then there's another, some, like I guess, uh, syntactic principle of uh, digitality. So I'm going to address each of those uh, you know, in turn. And in each case, you could sort of zone out of the details of the differences among the representational systems, uh, you know, and as I'm giving you that interesting tour, and then you know, zoom back into paying attention at the end of the section. Okay, so I think if you're going to step back from all the fights about exactly what do concepts have to do, what are concepts, I think the most basic thing we can say about concepts is that they classify various instances together as of a certain kind, right? They might be a certain, it might be, you know, Gabe again, right? Uh, or it might be, so they classify various instances as belonging together of the same thing or, you know, of blueness or, you know, whatever, of a person or something like that, right? So there's classification across diversity. Um, and that already means the concepts have to be at least somewhat abstract. They have to abstract away from variation in detail of particular implementations or instances that are encountered, or else you couldn't classify things together, right? At the minimum, it's Gabe now versus Gabe, you know, 15 seconds ago, right? So that's a difference that I'm, you know, abstracting away from. Um, now, if you assume that concepts do have representational vehicles at all, right? That's a highly substantial assumption. My, uh, you know, um, Gareth Evans, for one, wanted to stay away from it, but you know, lots of people want to embrace it. Um, I see why you might want to embrace it, but it's a big move. It's a move that is important in this, you know, it's sort of important for getting this debate uh, going about the format of thought. Um, uh, if you want to make that move, then that assumption that concepts have to abstract away, be at least somewhat abstract in the sense, I think basically entails the, the relation, the semantic principle, the relation between what makes a, what a concept is, what makes that vehicle what it is, and what it's about has to be at least somewhat arbitrary. Where by arbitrary, I mean not simply replicating the thing itself, right? Because there is no, um, uh, you know, to a greater or lesser degree, there is no common feature to actually replicate across all of those instances, right? This is the familiar point that there is no actual shape, you know, uh, you know, what it is to be triangular is not something you can draw in an instance, right? Because even all there, we're talking about a shape, but there are, you know, all sorts of different shaped triangles. So you can't simply replicate triangularity as such. You, you have to, you know, be more abstract than that. Um, so 
if you're sort of in the business of being a conceptual vehicle, you're already a somewhat arbitrary representational item. Um, now, well, words, those are arbitrary representational items, right? Like those, that relationship between words and uh, what they're about, that's arbitrary. So it looks like an argument that language has, thought has to be language-like. But, and that's true, um, but uh, not, other representational systems also are at least somewhat arbitrary in the semantic principle that maps their you know, uh, basic parts to what they're about. Uh, maps are, you know, so, so arbitrariness is a matter of degree and it's implementable in many different ways, right? There are different ways in which you can formalize or abstract away from a particular appearance or set of appearances. So uh, maps often use, you know, um, like a, a stylized park bench, a picnic bench as a sign for, you know, there's a picnic bench here. Uh, we use highly stylized figures for male and female bodies as signs of uh, icons of um, uh, uh, which bathrooms people should use. At the restaurant last night, there were these very highly and differently stylized uh, images of uh, uh, that were supposed to lead one to think about, uh, to identify a classification which was supposed to track the male-female distinction. Um, uh, it was amusing to watch people be puzzled about that mapping. Um, so, uh, so, yes, arbitrariness, doesn't follow from that that the relationship is a purely conventional one or along any particular sort of dimension, right? Um, uh, other systems, but so, so that doesn't get you the language. At the same time, other systems do rely more on perceptual similarity in their, they, they harness perceptual mechanisms in more robust ways in their semantic principles, right? So there's some way in which the picnic bench icon looks like a picnic bench or in which a male figure looks like a male body or a female figure looks like a female figure. Again, a matter of degree, lots of variation, lots of, as we've been emphasizing, lots of embedding within a rich you know, system of assumptions and context, but you know, uh, lots of complexity there. That's enough for me to say right now. Um, okay, so that was the first principle about the semantic principle that takes you from what the vehicle is to what it's about. Now, so far what I've been saying hasn't appealed. I've, that could be something, I haven't said anything that makes you think about an argument for uh, cons about concepts, all I've been talking about is sort of classifying things together in the you know in the world in thought, and that's something I could classify whole situations together in thought, right? I could say like this situation of you know tasty morsel ready for me to eat, right? Uh, pounceable morsel ready for me to eat uh, can be retokened across multiple scenarios, right? And I could just so I could have whole propositions as my representational vehicles, right? Um, uh, for various reasons, including the interest in greater productivity um, uh, and systematicity, um, also just the, the very idea of concepts to make sense or be interesting as opposed to thoughts. Um, what we're t talking about here is for, oh, so, for thoughts to be related and systematic and related to one another in systematic and productive ways, and especially in reliably and revealingly truth tracking ways. Those thoughts must be compositional, right? They have to have parts which are themselves recurrent in the vehicles and in virtue, in virtue of whose recurrence there's some kind of uh, you know, semantic uh, stability. Um, and again, 
this kind of redeployability across contexts, but now not context in what you're applying to, but context in what combinations of other concepts, other vehicle parts can you occur with. Um, uh, that kind of re, uh, redeployability, again, requires a kind of abstraction. Um, it means that you can't just be the kind of concept that can only combine with this one other concept, right? So you don't really have a differentiated productive system if a, a differentiated productive concept of is Harry, uh, sorry, is, is happy, if it can only ever apply to John, right? So you only really have a differentiable part if that is happy representational ability and part could be reapplied to John and Tom and let's let women in too, you know, Alice and whatever, um, uh, you know, Jane. He'll still sound very, you know, like, but anyway. Okay, so, um, so that's an argument for um, uh, having parts, reoccurring parts within your representational vehicle. And again, we got a really familiar paradigm of that. Words, right? That's what words are supposed to do. That's what they do do. Um, so again, language provides a paradigm of this kind of redeployable representational part. Great. Um, uh, but again, it's not the only system that does that. Right, so, um, so now, so I want to look at a little more detail at the kind of combinatorial principle that language uses and think about its contrasts. So um, I think part of what's uh, important and distinctive about language is that it's highly, it's combination, combina combinatorial operate, uh, principle is highly abstract in two distinct but interestingly related ways. First, um, the, Principle, the application of the principle is, this is a very mouthy way of putting this, but um, they're entirely constituted by operations on the basic constituent semantic values. So it's, uh, you know, the fun, so we're talking about like predication or, so what it is to do predication, right, is that's an entirely functional notion. It doesn't have anything to do with sort of the implementation, you know, being in a spatial relation to one another or something like that. Um, uh, the second thing is that the combinatorial principle itself makes a minimal semantic com contribution to the whole. So the best way to see this is by thinking about a contrast. Think about, um, so, so the best way to see the first point is that you can have the very same, you know, uh, um, linguistic structure expressed or represented in linear form with a sentence written out like a sentence normally is, or in phrase structure form written out in this more diagrammatic way, right? Same sentential, same linguistic structure expressed in two different ways. Harder to see what it is for a map to be written out in these two different ways, right? There are implementational constraints on being a physical map that there aren't on being an expression of a sentence. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to see the way in which the combinatorial principle of language itself it makes a merely minimal semantic principle is, contribution is take that phrase structure tree, right? The branching tree structure that we all know and love and that Gabe put up you know, briefly um, uh, when he was introducing Rossellian propositions. Um, that very same physical structure, branching trees, can be interpreted, can be embedded in two different representational systems with very different consequences. It can be embedded in a linguistic, you know, used as a comment to show a combinatorial principle of language, in which case it expresses predication, um, or according to your favorite theory, you know, functional application, or merge, or something like that. 
that operation, predication, functional application, merge, those are very, very general, widespread, neutral, semantically neutral operations. They can apply to a very, very wide range of things, right? They can take anything from is happy, is just, is you know, more than two feet tall, is uh, larger than the smallest thing, you know, whatever, and apply it to any kind of uh, reference of, you know, value of a noun phrase, right? So very general kind of operation. And then if you go up, for, that's just predication. If you go up to, you know, functional application, it's even more general. By contrast, that same phrase structure tree interpreted as used is in a diagrammatic system um, of a family tree, that combinatorial principle is much more semantically robust, right? It denotes, um, then the node and branches denotes sharing a common ancestor, right? As a result, because of that much more robust semantic interpretation of the combinatorial principle, the, that diagrammatic system, the diagrammatic system of family tree structure is much more expressively limited than that same sort of uh, diagrammatic tree interpreted as meaning predication, right? So you have the same sort of combinatorial thing in the vehicle interpreted as meaning predication in the one case or functional application and interpreted as meaning ancestry in the other case. And so in the, as a result, in the one case, family trees can only represent individuals as related in ancestry relations, right? By contrast, predication can represent, and functional application, whatever, can represent a very wide range of things. Okay? All right. Okay. So that's cool. That's something language does. That's great, right? There is this abstractness and this expressive generality. Um, but um, uh, it's not the only way, like, a decent representational system can work. So, um, uh, in particular, it's really interesting and brings certain kinds of expressive and, uh, well, certain kinds of at least um, interpretive advantages that pictures and maps, um, other, so, you know, pictures and maps, let's say, use spatial relations to represent spatial relations. And that makes them easy to interpret, right? Because you don't have to do the kind of uh, abstract interpretation that you have to do on sentences. Um, Venn diagrams use myriad topological relations to represent logical relations, right? So there are different ways in which other representational systems can exploit possibly physical features of their vehicle and have the significance of the way in which the marks are related in the vehicle map on to have a consequence for how the parts are being represented as being related, uh, yeah, period. Um, okay, so we have a variety and kinds of combinatorial principle with language being at this very abstract end of the um, uh, spectrum in both in the sense it's not really making use of the vehicle in a really robust way, and also in the sense that what it means for the parts to be put together in the vehicle is a very thin notion. Um, again, like, makes you think, great, could be like language could be like that, right? And, you know, I think a lot of our language is like that. But, again, combinatorial neutrality is itself a matter of degree. Um, and in particular, I think it's important here to remember that when 
philosophers and philosophers of language are talking about the compositional nature of language, really, I think they're thinking of the predicate calculus. Because natural language exhibits strong and interesting and not obviously motivated constraints on compositionality. Um, sometimes they look like there's purely syntactic constraints. Sometimes maybe they're phonological. Um, uh, it looks like there's important variation in the consequence of combination, right? So noun noun compounds are this really, you know, sort of classic case. The, upshot of uh, combining soccer with, say, soccer shirt, soccer fan, and soccer mom, you know, the sort of what it is to have the, that's a very different kind of relation. So it's not clear that lang natural language itself is really robustly compositional in the way people are dreaming and saying thought must be in order to be systematic and productive. Sultan Zabo suggests that compositionality might be more of like a methodological, a regulative ideal uh, or principle, you know, a methodological principle we've got to assume in trying to get the, you know, uh, to make a theory of language rather than, by contrast, I think these other representational systems, diagrammatic, diagrammatic and, and map cartographic systems, it's much more straightforward to say something about how the parts are combining into the holes, right? It's say, okay, spatial relations represent spatial relations, you know, spatial relations and physical relations represent logical relations. It's not that hard, and it's not aren't these kinds of puzzling exceptions. Okay. Um, okay, one more. One more small pair of interesting feature, an interesting feature exhibited by the combinatorial principle of language is that it is um, uh, recursive and asymmetrical, right? So it's recursive, that means the outputs can serve as inputs to the same operations. And it's asymmetrical, that means the order in which you put the two things in matters. Uh, the the, the input-output order matters. Um, uh, output depends on the order of combination. Together, these two features produce hierarchical structure. And that's also really awesome. It gets you all kinds of expressive power, especially power of meta-representation. Um, uh, and I think it also you know, helps to facilitate quantification. Those are great things to have. But those are not conditions on representation per se. They're not conditions on even sort of pretty sophisticated, uh, you know, conceptual representation that's, uh, you know, making connections among thoughts, drawing inferences. Um, uh, so can't say it's constitutive. And also, um, uh, but it also establishes an interesting contrast. So pictures and maps, uh, at least, are relatively flat. They don't have this kind of robust hierarchical structure. Um, at least if they do, we don't seem exploiting it ever in any really interesting way. So in this talk, I am attempting to prescind from any um, potentially stipulative uh, discussion about what exactly a proposition is, what it means to have propositional structure. As John said yesterday, there's lots of debate about how high or low should you set the bar. I do have a temptation to say, I know what propositional structure is if you mean the kind of structure expressed by this kind of system. Uh, it's important to note that's not stipulatively just linguistic. Um, as Daisy brought out, like Soames's structure, uh, uh, propositional structure, is a cognitive structure, but it has all of these features. Um, uh, yeah, period. Um, so I have some temptation to say this really is propositional structure, but I don't care about that for now. I just want to say here's something language recognizably does. And other systems don't necessarily do that. And we can't, shouldn't just say either you're doing that or you're a picture and there's no, nothing in between, or either you're doing that or there's no structure and there's nothing in between. Okay? Okay. 
So those were my first two principles. The semantic principle, taking you from a vehicle to what it's about. The syntactic principle, saying how the parts are combined into larger wholes. For concepts to form a stable recombinable structure at all, so there'd be this kind of parts that combine into wholes that we were talking about, they must be at least somewhat digital. That, and by digital here, I mean discrete. They have to have parts. Um, so in syntactically, the vehicles, let me see, do I really want to say all this? Okay, fine, I'll say all this. Syntactically, vehicles must be segmentable into parts by some kind of canonical decomposition. This is this phrase from Fodor. So you have to be able to say, um, what is the part in this overall vehicle to which you assign a semantic value, right? You have to be able to identify the parts in the vehicle in order to be able to assign them uh, values and say how they're combining. Uh, I'm just going to, okay, fine, I'll say that. I'm doing okay for time, yeah. Um, uh, and then it also, uh, this also means that, and this relates to some things that John wants to say, um, it, it also means that the principle determines what kind of concept you are or what kind of representational part you are more generally, what kind of, you know, what kind of representational, what do you count as in this representational system? Um, that has to not take into account every single feature of that of the element of the of the, the physical feature or feature of the the part, or else it couldn't recur over all these different. You have to you know all these different occasions. You have to be ignoring at least some of the features in order to carve it up into these parts. Um, okay, again, language seems like it fits this model really well. We've heard you know. Um, so again, language provides a paradigmatic case: a relatively small number of fixed atoms combined via a few discrete operations to produce determinate contents. We see how we get these parts and how they build up into these holes. Or sort of. Again, as I was saying, natural language is not clear that it actually does that, but you know, we can sort of see how we can, and we know predicate calculus does do that. Um, there are some you know, good reasons for that. I think, again, especially communicative uh, advantage to that. Um, but not all representational systems work like this. Um, other systems, so there's two kinds of stepping back from this kind of uh, way of working, of being really uh, discrete that I want to pay attention to. Uh, some systems like maps, some maps think of like a highly regimented road map. They employ a fixed base of elements, like a, a vocabulary, a fixed vocabulary. But they permit many, 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 many ways of combining those, right? So you don't, uh, you can sort of move them a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right or whatever, right? There's lots of places. It's not like predication is this one relation. Um, uh, others, other representational systems, other maps, more plausibly like road atlases, um, they lack fixed discrete symbolic base and fixed discrete combinatorial operations, right? So they, these are the kinds of maps you're really familiar with. They have roads that curve, lakes that, you know, jut in and out, um, uh, lots of features like that that are related in endlessly many ways. So they use lines and areas of potentially continuous variability to denote shape. Um, uh, they may also employ uh, further dimensions of potentially continuous variety. As John was saying yesterday, they might imply ver employ variations in hue and saturation and texture and pattern to represent variations in the total quantity and duration and intensity and even your belief in the reliability of your information about rainfall. Right. So in that sense, there might be a lot of layering of semantic significance of features, right? Um, you're communicating a lot of things along potentially continuing varying dimensions. Um, so in this sense, there's really no fixed expressive base or fixed combinatorial principle. 
for these kinds of representational systems. I think this is part of what drove John to this pixelization analysis, and I think Gabe as well. Um, you want to isolate some basic parts that are doing the work from which you can build up. I, I would like to avoid, I'm you know, happy to go there if we have to go there, but I would prefer to avoid, I think, what, I'm not sure we need to work up from the bottom that way. Because I want to think about, well, how do these systems work anyway? I mean, if we step back, how do these systems work? Um, we can still give, I think, a robustly formal semantics for these kinds. We can still say how they work in formal terms um, in a way, and they, we can say that they work in a way that supports systematicity and productivity. So we can say that marks are still typed in physical terms, right? So for a map, take a map that is, I know it's especially egregious that I have a dense handout and no PowerPoint. But um, so take a uh, map that represents uh, distribution of rainfall, as I was just suggesting, distribution of rainfall, say, in Africa, um, averaged over a certain you know, five years, um, and uh, tracks using these various dimensions, sort of how intense the rainfall is when it happens. That's one, how, how it's saturated the color is, let's say, um, how, what color, what hue it is, represents how much of the rainfall total there is, um, uh, hash marks versus like the density of the hash marks is being used to represent, uh, what do I have, um, uh, duration of rain. So you have these different dimensions of information about rain, which are being represented by syntactically distinct physical marks, right? How saturated is the color? How, uh, what you know, uh, hue is the color. Is it is the color produced by little slashes right next to each other or by dots? Right. You can layer these kinds of effects on top of each other, but they're still They're still um, uh, physically typed. Right. They mean what they do in virtue of their physical marks. So they're assigned a value in virtue of uh, they count as what they do as vehicles and are assigned a value in the world in virtue of those physical types in much the way we say a word counts as the word and because of its uh, hopefully physical marks. Um, so marks are typed as physical terms and assigned contents via straightforward algorithms. Secondly, I think as I was saying before, they're still syntactically tractable in the sense that entire map's content is fully determined by the value of its marks and the way they're combined. And we know what it means. If the road is shaped like this, that means it's denoting, a, you know, if, if, if this black mark is shaped like this, it's denoting a road with that same shape, right? Similarly for, uh, you know, the pond and similarly. So we have a straightforward formal way of going from the, you know, um, and, and similarly for the proximity, the distance between the road and the pond. Um, we, that also has a robustly formal uh, sort of algorithm for interpreting it. So as a result, it's still straightforward to compute the truth conditions and valid update rules for these systems while acknowledging continuous variability in the semantic value without identifying you know, discrete bits and discrete either um, syntactically or semantically in terms of the, the, how, how they're working. Okay? So I think that's why we care about compositionality, whether we call it compositionality or not. That's why we care about it. And we can give a semantics that uh, works that way, that respects that and is continuous and can still support systematic manipulations in representations in a way that's going to reliably tra and demonstrably track it. I haven't totally done it in the way that Gabe suggests, you know, started to begin doing, but I 
think it can be seen to be done and is a project which I have, you know, <clears throat> sketched in previous work which remains uh, <clears throat> unpublished. Okay, so last thing I want to mention about, um, uh, about this uh, uh, discreteness is, uh, and this, I actually am so kind of surprised this hasn't come up more in the last two days. Um, this is that the, the basic informational unit in language is small and discrete, relatively small, and is isolated. So um, if you think about this especially clearly if you think about, um, uh, about conversational discourse structure. So um, you know, there's an ad issue proposition, and there's a bunch. So you might communicate a host of propositions, but there's like, all proposition is the ad issue content, um, and there's uh, sort of a lot of pressure for that to be a single proposition, and that might have a lot of subsidiary parts, but it's still a single proposition. Um, and uh, the basic unit, the minimal unit of significance, is just A is F. That's a very small unit of information. Um, other representational systems are much more highly relational, right? They are connecting lots of pieces of information intimately and holistically, uh, you know, in an integrated way. Um, so I'm going to, I have here two things that are very uh, controversial, but, and I have more to say about them, but I'm just going to mention them now. So I think every item on a map is explicitly, in, in a set, you might have a set of sentences which contain all the same information as the information in a map. But the map explicitly relates that information to it, uh, for the, explicitly articulates the relational information among all the uh, represented elements in a way that the set of sentences doesn't. Um, so this is why it's you know, obvious, it's useful to solve these stupid um, uh, you know, law school exams or various kinds of exams about uh, how to seat people at a dinner party. Uh, you know, this person has to sit next to this person and this person has to you know, be at least two seats away from this person and whatever. There's a lot of relational information that's specified sententially. The best way to solve those is by constructing some kind of map of the seating arrangement because then you see they're explicitly related to each other in a way that they're not in the set of sentences. Gabe is saying, what do you mean explicitly related to each other? And part of what I mean by that is that um, if you move and if you change one icon, one syntactic element in the, um, uh, in the map, say you move Bob from here to here, you thereby automatically syntactically update Bob's relations, or the relations in which Bob is represented as being to all the other uh, you know, people or things that are represented in that field. And so it's syntactically not possible to have a certain kind of contradiction, a certain kind of, you know, Bob is both here and here, right? Um, because you have moved, by moving him, you've moved all, you've changed all those representation relations. So that is that those relations are encoded syntactically in a way that they're not, um, those relations are syntactic in a way that they're not in the sentences. Uh, okay. That was the sort of uh, tour through the details, these three principles of the way language works and the way other systems work in different ways and the ways in which that has expressive uh, and inferential consequences. I know it went super fast, but now I want to step back to the sort of um, you know, broader morals of the story or how should we think about this debate. And partly I want to do that because I think there's interesting overlap and diversity in this group about how to think about this. So. Um, so what I think we should, what, is, what, what are the consequences of this? So debates about the propositionality of images, are pictures propositional? That often appears to be a merely terminological debate, uh, appears to be, so, you know, Anderson, 1978, John Anderson says, like, like you can trade these things off any way you want. You can specify uh, um, uh, any content in propositional terms, and you can build a machine that's either imagistic or uh, sentential that's going to process, you know, end up processing, have the same overall input-output relations. 
So is it a merely terminological debate? Well, um, can the contrast, I, I hope and think that the, thinking about the contrasts in the different ways that non-linguistic systems work can help to sort of move it away from that. One thing I think is that a desiderata on, um, a desideratum on uh, the way you're analyzing how a representational system works should make a substantive theoretical cut. So uh, I worry that a Stalnakarian analysis of propositions, that unstructured propositions, uh, doesn't interestingly distinguish, uh, you know, it, it, by simply by virtue of talking merely about what is represented and not how it's represented, it's not carving up the space in a really interesting, the theoretical space in a really interesting way. I think that's one reason for the we need to talk about structured propositions, uh, you know, if we want this to be an interesting uh, debate in this context. Those propositions are really, unstructured propositions are really interesting and important for other purposes. And you know, I don't think we should do it without them even you know, here. But if you're going to be asking, are these systems propositional, you should be asking that at the level of structure. Um, I also think that key terms should employ distinctions that matter within that representational system. So one uh, worry, one hesitation I have about, um, certainly about the way Gabe, you were framing it, and uh, also I think John, you're still, you're, you're still shackled to the language in the sense that you have uh, basic objects of which properties are being predicated, right, at the basic level of analysis. And one of the things, and so, you know, that's certainly you can capture, I'm not saying that these systems don't work, these models don't work. One thing I think is interesting about, um, uh, the way that maps work is that the distinction between an individual and a kind only shows up as a relatively arbitrary t uh, constraint on how many times you can token that symbol in that representational system, right? So what makes Bob a name is not the syntactic combinatorial role it plays, like it, it gets the input to, um, uh, to predicates, um, but rather the fact that you can only put it on a map once. Whereas, you know, um, uh, is a park bench can occur a bunch of times. So I would like the terms in which I'm describing, the sort of representational significance that I'm ascribing to my representational system to reflect the ontological distinctions that are mattering in that, you know, that are showing up in that system. Now, you might think that actually the predicative, uh, you know, distinction is showing up in the, uh, you know, in uh, pictorial or map structure, and that would be a cool way to, you know, but that's an, a more specific argument to make. Oh, okay. Um, right, so more generally, an adequate analysis should explain the distinctive implementational, expressive, and inferential contours of the target system. So it shouldn't be one thing that uh, makes me want to resist a propositional analysis of both maps and pictures, is it doesn't look to me like the full expressive powers of propositional representational systems are being exploited or, you know, if this is a propositional, re propositional representational system, why are the representations always flat and only con connected by conjunction? Why are we not finding quantification? Why are we not finding anything like negation or disjunction? Now, you can just add, you can build those constraints in, of course. But the more, and in that sense, like, then it does become terminological. But I think a desideratum on a better representational, if we're trying to choose among analyses of a, how a representational system works, those that explain why the expressive limitations are there or explain why certain patterns of inference are really easy or don't even involve inference, they're already just staring you in the face, that should be something that is revealed by the analysis that you're offering. Uh, okay, right, and in particular, 
capturing these distinctive profile, these contours of uh, expressive and inferential contours, implementational, I hope, um, involves not just capturing the satisfaction conditions of a single representation, what it would take for this representation to be true, but rather capturing the dynamics of a representational system sort of in use, where that means thinking about update rules, what happens if you change, as you change a representation, what happens when there's an error introduced, when it, uh, there's an er uh, some other kind of breakdown, how does that error that propagate through the system? These are gonna happen, work in different ways for different systems, uh, as I was suggesting about the like, way contradiction or whatever is gonna show up, and that's, I think, again, is something we can use at least as a diagnostic. Um, <clears throat> finally, it's something we've talked a lot about, especially, uh, well, okay, uh, um, is the different, I think it's really interesting and really important that uh, what you're ultimately evaluating, I feel like I've been a bit of a broken record about this, what you're ultimately evaluating is a total representational system in use, which means embedded within a pragmatics, right? And some of that is gonna be drawing on Gricean, like very general Gricean mechanisms for deriving stuff from stuff. Uh, some of that's gonna be uh, drawing on um, specific Gricean mechanisms about the implications of particular elements within the representational system. Like, what does it mean, as we were talking about, uh, 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 Catherine, what does it mean for, uh, you know, for something to represent or resemble? In this context, it means something that depends upon the assumptions of, the, of that context and what is brought, is brought to mind. By, you know, so there's lots of ways in which we need to be thinking about sort of the pragmatics of interpretation here. But we also need to be distinguishing what the, you know, the speaker or the agent is representing from what is, in, is semantically represented by this, uh, 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 sorry, is represented by the vehicle itself. And within that, I think it's fruitful to distinguish uh, what is represented by semantic means and what is represented syntactically in virtue of the way the parts are combined. And different representational systems trade off the representational burden between the syntax, the semantics, and the pragmatics in different kinds of ways. So I don't think we should draw any sharp limits on what this system per se can express or can't express because it can be used by agents to express you know, pretty much, I don't know, in principle, lots of things. What's interesting is to see the different ways in which these kinds of things trade off. So in particular, one thing I'm interested in is seeing the different ways in which, say, fiction films and fiction novels trade off what is explicitly represented and what is merely implicated in virtue of what they can, you know, are really good at or can directly represent. Uh, last thing. Limitations and breakdowns are at least as revealing as, uh, as strengths. So people tend to say, look, language, great. It can do all these things, right? Um, true, but also there are certain kinds of uh, weaknesses that come along with that. There's certain kinds of trade-offs. Uh, it's useful to think about uh, limitations as well and kinds of breakdowns. Last thing I just want to flag is that there's an assumption that I've been making all throughout and that um, I think everybody, uh, well, I think everybody is, well, I don't know, um, is a differently structured system, my ultimate lesson is that differently structured systems work in importantly different ways. Um, but I've been assuming a sort of structuralist analysis. I've been assuming that there is a structure to a representational system that is in some sense inherent to the idea of a representational system, right? Um, 
And it's important for underwriting systematic you know, representation. Um, I want to think a little bit more about how, you know, un, how essential that assumption is. And in particular, one of the things that I think um, is interesting to think about, and I've thought about before in John's work and you know, I was thinking about yesterday, is you know, what does it mean to have combinations of parts, right? Um, we don't, we sh I've been saying we shouldn't use like a scissor principle for uh, identifying what a part is, uh, that you can cut the thing. Um, we need some the other more creative ways about thinking about parts. I think that's you know really important. Um, uh, what are the limitations on that? If we free ourselves up from this sort of scissor principle, what you know kind of what does it mean to have a part? How creative can we be about thinking about how representational systems might have parts that combine? All right, that's it. Thank you.